Welcome to the Essential Financial Advisor Marketing Podcast. In this podcast, you'll get discussions and interviews 100% dedicated to helping financial advisors with their marketing challenges, as well as sharing what's working well in their practice. The Essential Financial Advisor Marketing Podcast is produced by FinancialAdvisors.com, the premier directory for financial advisors across the U.S. Your hosts and panelists include Jim Eckel, president of FinancialAdvisors.com, and Ken Tucker, marketing solutions architect. So thank you for checking us out, and please let us know how we can better help you grow your advisory practice. Welcome, everyone, to the Essential Financial Advisor Marketing Podcast, brought to you today by FinancialAdvisor.com, the consumer-friendly, advisor-driven, comprehensive marketing platform for the financial services industry. Today, my guest is Mark Friedenthal, founder of Tolerisk. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Appreciate you having me, Jim Ken. Uh, it's great to be here. Yeah, very good. Well, I'd just like to begin out with a couple of basic questions for you, Mark, with regards to, first of all, how long have you been in the financial services industry? Uh, number one, and can you tell our listeners where you located in the country? Yeah, so I'm going to date myself a little bit. My first job in financial services, I was a runner on the Philadelphia Options Exchange in 1991. I've been in some form or another for a while, not always in risk tolerance, but but been around financial services a while. We are based in Marlton, New Jersey, which is about 10 miles east of Philadelphia as the crow flies. Let's get right to it. Can you tell us, Mark, a little bit about what is Tolerisk? Tolerisk is a risk tolerance assessment tool for all kinds of financial advisors, investment advisors. Uh, it's really designed for the advisor to help the client make better decisions when it comes to risk and also have more confidence in the process so that they stick with the plan. And, and frankly, the confident client's the one that typically makes the referrals as well. It's also pretty darn supportive from a compliance perspective. So sometimes when I'm talking to somebody that's in more of a corporate role, compliance ends up being a big part of the focus. They want a process that's objective, that's repeatable, documentable. They want it to be consistent, not just from one client to the next and one year to the next, but from one advisor to the next. That can be a driver as well. We cater specifically to the fiduciary process. I think that's a big aspect that elevates our exercise versus what advisors historically have typically done. We've taken what the SEC describes for risk tolerance, which is someone's willingness to accept risk, as well as their ability to take risk. And we've given the advisors the tools to measure both of those dimensions and show how their ability may be evolving mathematically over time, which is the constraint, and at the same time, really validate the client's premise so that everybody can be confident in the decisions that arise from that analysis. Mark, you mentioned fiduciary. Let's talk about that. What makes for a fiduciary caliber risk tolerance assessment? That's a great question. In the U.S., actually, risk tolerance is not mandatory the way it is in certain parts of Asia and Europe. We really looked at the SEC specifically, as I was mentioning, we, we look at what they described qualitatively, since it's not a requirement. Most firms have a very basic requirement for risk tolerance. It's often kind of a CYA, and it's not usually well appreciated by the advisor or the client, because most of the typical exercise historically has been nebulous, personality focused, it's multiple choice questions that slots the client as moderate in most cases, sometimes aggressive or conservative, but it's this sort of nebulous nomenclature that's 
not necessarily so objective and clear or consistent from one advisor to the next or one client to the next. So we really started with what the SEC describes, which is, is someone's willingness to accept risk and their ability to take risk. The former has been done for a while, and it's been done by a lot of different tools, from simple quizzes to some other technology tools, uh, some of them around longer than us, not too many of them, but some of them. The big difference in what really makes for a fiduciary experience is the measurement of somebody's ability to take risk. And the way we go about it is to use traditional fixed income mathematics applied to household cash flows. So we, much the way you might look at a bond or a bond portfolio, and you could measure mathematically how sensitive the value is to changes in interest rates or credit spreads. Mm -hmm. We can use the same kinds of techniques to measure that kind of sensitivity to market risk for household cash flows. Now, household cash flows are more complex than your typical bond. Right? Typical bond, if it's a treasury, pays coupon every six months, principal at the end, pretty straightforward. Household cash flows, as we know, can have irregular intervals. They can have money coming in and going out. They can be across more than one tax status. So they're more complex, but the principles are the same. And ultimately, we can measure how sensitive they are to changes in market risk. We use an industry standard scale to make it all practical, to make it practical to compare to what the client perhaps has used in the past or what the advisor might recommend. So everything coming out of Tolerance is calibrated to that broadly diversified stocks to bonds style benchmark ratio. So if you get a 70 whether it's your willingness or your ability or ultimately your tolerance score, which is the constraint, that 70 equates to a risk level that's about 70% in diversified growth assets like equities or alternatives or things like that. And the 30%, of course, in lower risk assets. Again, easy to compare to what they've experienced before or what the advisor might be thinking about implementing. And I think that's part of what makes it so practical. You can take all this robust mathematics and still express it to the client in something that's easy to use, easy to understand. I think that's why it's uh, so successful for, for advisors and their clients. That's really interesting. How do you take risk tolerance and financial planning <clears throat> exercises? How do they intersect? Great question. Some of what we do does intersect. Broad planning tools use a risk directive as an input. So if Mr. and Mrs. Smith have a 60-40 portfolio, that's one of the inputs. There's a certain set of assumptions sitting behind a certain expected return, a certain standard deviation or variance of returns that is commensurate with that 60-40 portfolio. And most often, the user, the advisor is allowed to calibrate that themselves. If they want to be more aggressive or more conservative, they can reflect that. With that basic assumption, there's some user-defined End of the exercise, like Mr. or Mrs. Smith's 90th birthday or something like that. That risk level's held constant unless it's subjectively changed in the future. And what those exercises typically do is they use what's called a single factor Monte Carlo simulation. So they take that capital markets assumption and they use it to create, let's say, a thousand or so different potential paths of portfolio returns in the future, or maybe potential portfolio returns right. in the future. And then at the end of that exercise, when let's say Jane Smith is 90 on her 90th birthday, they say, okay, how many of those thousand paths had money at the end versus had run out previous to that? That's the classic kind of exercise in a nutshell. One of the ways that we have intersected is we needed to provide the fiduciary 
the functionality to validate the client's premise at an earlier stage in the process. If they wait until they do that broad plan, they enter a risk level that might not be commensurate with someone's ability to take risk. They have this inconsistency. Mm -hmm. So the better process is to do it really before they get to that point. Now, those broad planning tools do an excellent job with detailed cash flow projection and tax projections, and they can do almost seemingly countless modules, whether it's tax and estate strategies and charitable giving strategies and all kinds of things. And some of them produce a pretty in-depth, lengthy report. It could be 100 or more pages. So there's a lot that can be done with those tools. We don't get into that level of detail. So we certainly don't replace tools like that. But we needed to be able to let that fiduciary advisor validate the client's premise because the last thing they want to do as part of that fiduciary duty of care is provide advice on something as important as a risk directive without the advisor and the client being confident in those underlying assumptions. That's where the intersection comes. While we don't get into that level of detail, we needed to give a very robust but simple barometer for our users, for our advisors. And what we do is provide them the probability that the client, and if there's two, if it's a, let's say it's a Jane and John Doe, so to speak, the probability that Jane or John Doe or both would be alive after their money's gone. And that might sound like the output from one of the broad planning tools, but there's a couple of differences I'll draw your attention to. One is we're not tethered to the idea that today's risk directive will be held constant for the rest of their lives. And common sense and frankly, advisor experience leads them to the notion that that's, that makes it more realistic. If we're able to measure their ability to take risks and we can measure mathematically how that's likely to evolve as the client migrates towards and through their cash flows, that can be incorporated, that custom glide path can be incorporated into the simulation. That makes it more of a realistic reflection of what that client may experience in the future rather than just saying, we'll just hold it constant. You got a 60-40 today, you're 30 years old, we'll just assume for the next 60 years, we'll just keep it unchanged. So advisors and frankly, clients appreciate the fact that there might be a better assumption. We may have more insight than just assuming it's constant. That's one of the big advancements. Another one is how we handle inflation. The broad planning tools tend to focus very much on simulating potential portfolio return with all those detailed cash flows and tax modeling, which certainly can be helpful. Usually it's a single path or a single assumption for inflation. What we know and what advisors tell us that they know is that the best indication of financial longevity, how long someone's money will last, is the path of real returns that they end up experiencing. And of course, we don't know what that path will be. But I draw your attention to the contrast of simply using the path of nominal returns. You may have heard the expression sequence of return risk. That's what simulation models were designed to do. It beats the predecessor. The old original financial plans, and I think some of us on this call might remember those, they were static. They had your cash flows in and out. We assume your portfolio generates 6% returns. Inflation is X. And when did your money run out? And they didn't capture that sequence of return risk, the fact that it's not going to be 6% return. Correct. So there were big advances in that regard. But what we actually now know is that it's not the sequence of nominal returns that's the very best driver, but the sequence of real returns 
it's the path of real returns that someone experiences because it's not just how the portfolio performs. It's how the portfolio performs relative to the pace at which someone draws from their portfolio. And we know the pace at which they draw their expenses are very much related to what inflation will be in the future. So accounting for that uncertainty makes it a more realistic output. And we find advisors and clients that resonates with them. The client doesn't respond to the long list of caveats and qualifications. We give you tons of detail and information. I'm being hyperbolic here. Assuming that your 60-40 risk level stays constant and inflation is 3% and you both die on Jane's 90th birthday. We know that's not that realistic. So having a process that accounts for that variability, that uncertainty is important. I'll tell you the other thing I want to mention, which I think is one of the coolest things that we developed that is a big advancement. Instead of having our users choose the end of the exercise, like Jane Doe's 90th birthday, we actually build mortality probabilities by year, by spouse, directly into the simulation. We even allow them to be customized. If the client wants to identify gender, if they want to give an indication of health, lifestyle habits, family history, again, high level. We're not talking about real detail. We're saying, are you above average? Are you below average? Are you well above average? We will shift that probability distribution to be commensurate with that. And when you've got two individuals, Tolerisk is actually smart enough to incorporate last survivor probability year by year. So second to die probability year by year, which is what most people care about. They want to know that neither one of them are going to run out of money. What is the likelihood of that kind of event? So by, by taking all that robust mathematics, but packaging it in this very concise, short exercise and giving the advisor that easy barometer, not only are they providing better, more useful information to the client, but it becomes very easy to validate. It becomes easy to validate the premise, the assumption. Imagine for a moment that the advisor and the client go through this exercise and the client has a high probability of running out of money. Let's say it's 53% just to make neither the advisor nor the client are going to be comfortable with that. And so they're not going to be comfortable relying on a measurement of somebody's ability to take risk, knowing whether that's the constraint or maybe their personality is the constraint, if it's based on an untenable set of assumptions. So the first thing the advisor is going to do as their coach, as their counselor, is help them figure out what is likely going to change. Are they going to plan to work longer? Are they going to trim what they spend now and save more between now and retirement? Are they going to downsize something else in the future? Maybe it's some combination of these moving parts. But making those changes, setting more realistic assumptions may change their ability to take risk. And it might even cause it to go above or below their willingness to accept risk. So you can imagine all these things need to be done concurrently. Can you ask how this integrates with the planning process? It's all got to be integrated together to have the most meaningful result. Yeah, absolutely. Especially right now when you read in the paper that the inflation rate has been the highest on a quarterly basis in like 20 years or something like that. Everybody looks at that. I'm old. We're all old enough here to remember what the inflation was like in the 80s or the 70s. We were younger then, but the last thing you want to do is be our age or older than we are and find out, uh oh, that purchasing power just took another hit. Gosh, I would love to actually have planned for that. It's funny you mention that. We find a lot of advisors use Tolerisk as a wellness checkup too. Mm-hmm. because it's a concise exercise, very quick to update. So if, especially if you've done one, then it's like any Microsoft product. You open up the last one, you hit save as, and you can update whatever the current kind of information. You're still retiring at this point. You're still putting your kid through college, whatever is relevant. 
And so you can measure if that probability running out of money is ticking in the wrong direction or if the right risk level when measuring their ability, if it's a little different than it was before. You can make those small adjustments, that small course correction. I often think about it the way we think about healthcare. We talk about a wellness right. financially. We all hopefully go to our doctors once a year. They put you on a scale, draw some blood, take a few measurements. Hopefully we're doing it when we feel great. Because if one of those numbers or something is ticking a little bit in the wrong direction, there's usually a lot of options. Maybe it's we'll watch it. Maybe it's go on a diet or get some exercise. Maybe it's take some pills. But we may have lots of choices. If we wait to go to the doctor until we're symptomatic, heaven forbid we got stage four something or other, there right. usually aren't so many options at that point. And right. financial planning is very much the same in that if we have an easy way to update that client's sort of financial wellness and know if, if it's headed in the wrong direction, we have an idea. Do we need to do it more frequently? Do we need to help them course correct? Do we need to just watch it a little bit? But that's such an important part so we don't wake up down the road and go, holy moly, inflation ended up being a lot higher than we thought and we can't sustain this lifestyle. And now we're in our 70s and we can't go back to work or we don't feel like we can. I'm sure some people can, but maybe we don't feel like we can. Mm. So it is much easier to make small course corrections as early in the planning process as possible versus making draconian changes later in life. That's often very difficult for people. If there's a big life event change, like you get a large inheritance or you lose your job or you decide to get divorced or something like that, what do you recommend in use of Tolerisk risk for? Yeah, all great examples. All examples of when you want to up your Tolerisk risk assessment, when you want to see how that changes not only your ability to take risk, but also your financial longevity, because those things can have an impact. Yeah. And those things might necessitate some course correction, and it could be in either direction. Maybe that surprise inheritance means retiring earlier is quite practical, or maybe it's a different quality of life in, in retirement. There's more than one way to the, and we provide a lot of companion analytics. I talked about the main outputs, which are designed to answer the most common questions advisors say their clients ask. The two most common questions, of course, are what do we do now, and what's the likelihood we run out? So that's kind the dashboard on tolerance. But there's a lot of other companion analytics because number one, people learn in different ways, clients and advisors, that we want to give them different tools to be able to explain somewhat complex concepts like financial longevity. That's not always intuitive to every client. So we want to give them different ways of expressing it. Yes, maybe for some that all-encompassing, you've got a 8% chance of you or your spouse outliving your money. For many, that sort of all-encompassing metric, that simple one number, that's the easiest. But not for everybody. Some people need to see it graphically. Some people need to see, we have one report that's a little newer for us. It came out earlier this year that shows what percentage of somebody's future expenses are already funded and how each successive year they work they're funding more and more of their future. We show them very graphically, visually, when we expect them to reach 100% funded. And in huh. fact, what's nice about that is it's also a great illustration of what's the trade-off. Maybe we'll retire a little bit earlier, but we'll curtail our life. So what is that trade-off? Maybe we retire a few years earlier, and it's on 80 or 90% of our lifestyle. You can see it visually. And many people are visual. And so being able to provide the advisors tools 
so that they can connect with their client. They can show their client how things are likely to evolve for them. That tends to engender that confidence, that drives that confidence. Clients that see that this advisor's process has been customized for them, that mm -hmm. they're going to be with this client through all of these different life events, that this isn't a one and done, that it's not just right. a here are 12 questions and we'll call you moderate. When they see that it's been tailored to them, that drives that confidence. It helps the client exhibit better behavior. We know that clients that can stick with the plan have better outcomes. And again, from the advisor's perspective, the confident clients are the ones that make the referrals. Even though this is all built for fiduciary standards and it's built to support the compliance efforts and things, most advisors who are client-facing, they look to elevate this exercise for business development. They do it because they want to drive confidence for their clients. They want to impress their prospects. Because again, that's how they get more conversion. And, and those confident clients are the ones that make those referrals. There is a big tie to business development. Dovetailing off that, how would you use Risk to help an advisor market? Yeah, it's a great question. A lot of advisors use our landing pages. We, we provide them actually landing pages for different types of services that'll have their logo, it'll have an embedded video, a what's in it for me kind of video. They have to be very short. You don't always know how much attention span you have from a, a prospect, but they can be used in social media, for example, advisors will put a, a maybe a little bit of a provocative statement, whether it's Facebook. Do you really know how long your money's going to last? That would get a number of people to say, maybe I'm interested in this. And mm -hmm. then from there, they might click a link that was provided that would take them to that landing page with that advisor's logo and an embedded video that would be like a minute or so. Okay. And then that video is designed to get them to think, yeah, I want to go through this exercise. I want this information. I want to know how long my money's going to, or at least what risk I have about living. And I want to know how much risk I should be taking along the way. That's what prompts them to want to engage with the advisor. And, and we provide processes so the advisor can capture that lead when they do that. It'll ask for contact information and things like that. That's one way. We have a 401k tool. We have advisors. A number of them had shared over the years that one of the challenges in that employer-sponsored market, the 401ks and 403bs and things like that, one of the challenges is that there might be a couple of executives in that plan, but mm -hmm. most of the participants in that plan have pretty small balances. It's difficult to serve the masses cost-effectively, at least the way they want to serve them. So some say, I just don't touch that market at all. Mm -hmm. Some say... I only take on a plan because I have a relationship with the owner, the, the, the partner, and I can't say no. And others say, I serve at the plan level, but I don't serve the participants. So we hear all kinds of responses that are usually to deal with that challenge. If the median balance in the plan is 20, 30, 40, $50,000, most of those participants are not generating enough per capita revenue to cover the kind of advisory time it takes to do custom planning, custom allocation, custom glide path. It's just not feasible. We give them an architecture. It's a different tool that comes with the subscription, but we provide an exercise called Tolerus 401k that allows them to decide how they want to deliver that custom process, but do it through automation and technology. Build it. It takes them five minutes to set up a plan in Tolerus, and we create automatically a website for all the participants in that plan. They can get everything self-serve, everything from what's the right risk level to how things might change to 
what's the likelihood I outlive my money and how much longer do I need to work or how much more do I need to save to make that something I can live with? We provide all of that self-serve. And you were talking about business development and how to use it, Ken. The reason it made me think of this particular exercise is we found advisors use it as a data collection tool because they'll drop a file of all the participant data that they collected and they can query for who's over 59 that might be a candidate maybe for a rollover. Who has material assets outside of the plan that may benefit from other services that advisor provides? It became an easy way, very time efficient to identify those people. And I think they were otherwise missing them. So that can be an interesting way to, to okay. use it to generate some leads and sales and things like that too. I can recall when I was in the market as an advisor, working with companies that were, uh, I provided 401k type of things. And I was always amazed at the question the owner would ask me. He said, how big is my account? That was number one. And I started talking about highly compensated versus lowly compensated. And as soon as I got into those numbers, then it was like, how much is your administration? It's all about what's in it for me. I'm not sure if that's changed. Maybe it hasn't over the years, but it's always been, from my point of view, how can we actually do work a 401k that'll benefit the, the workers, if you will, the people in the plan? One of the other biggest things, the fact that the IRS, I think ERISA had to establish safe harbors to make sure that if anything went awry, there was a safety net the advisor could crawl into and say, you know what, I didn't tell Joe to invest in this. It's not my fault and so forth. It looks like to me that you've come up with a way to solve all of those things, i.e. on the cost of the administration or once more, those safe harbor or if an advisor can take that approach to using your tool to say, we've got you covered. We understand what owners are looking for. We want to benefit the whole of the company, not only the highly compensated, but more importantly, the lowly compensated. So you're right. There's a lot that goes into some of the actuarial work to protect the non-highly compensated employee, the NHCE. All the right. labor laws are really built for that population. So you're, you're absolutely right. In terms of safe harbor, that's actually not designed to protect an advisor. What it really does is it protects the plan and specifically really the, the trustee that's acting on behalf of the plan sponsor. If you're dealing with a small company, that's probably the owner of the company or the manager partner of the company. It's designed to absolve them of some of the labor law tests so that if they would otherwise have failed, and a lot of it has to do with how do you show how much benefit is going to those non-highly compensated versus the highly compensated. The executives mm -hmm. are all highly motivated to put away as much money as possible. They often are the ones that have the surplus cash. They want the tax benefits and things. And so frequently the line level employees don't always take advantage of those kinds of tax advantage contributions. Without a safe harbor designation, the plan runs the risk of going afoul where it doesn't pass muster according to labor laws, where mm -hmm. if you really don't do anything to remedy that, the plan could lose its pension tax status, which is That's really right. catastrophic. Tax exemption, uh, right. what, what happens if it's being monitored closely is they'll actually send money back to the highly compensated employees mm -hmm. because they'll lower the benefit that's right. reported to them so that the ratios come out and pass yeah. those standards. Let me tell you, that can really piss off some of those highly compensated <laughs> employees. And I've seen situations where just because of operational delays, those highly compensated don't find out until after they've filed their taxes. Imagine yep. how annoying that is to have to go back, amend your taxes, especially yep. if you're paying an accountant to do that. So you're right. 
in my personal opinion, a safe harbor plan certainly is well worth consideration for those reasons. What I find from advisors is they say the plan sponsor loves the idea of supporting all year round financial wellness and education and providing for the participants as long as it doesn't increase their cost. That's very true. <laughs> and that's where the solution shines because we don't charge the advisor by plan or by participant. They pay a subscription for the software. In fact, it comes with their subscription. So if they primarily use it for their wealth management clients and they have a few 401ks, there's zero incremental cost to them because that solution comes with their software. They can roll it out to all the plans they have and all the participants they have. There is no incremental cost whatsoever. So it becomes a very cost-effective way to elevate that experience for the participants. And I'll tell you, for the advisors that do want to develop more of that business, the ones that are trying to land more plans, we usually provide some marketing resources for that as well, landing page and videos for prospective plan sponsors, mm -hmm. because this exercise is a great way to differentiate. It's a great way for the advisor to say, hey, here's what you get working with me who's going to provide more support for your participants, more education, more financial wellness for your participants at no added cost whatsoever. That's mm -hmm. a pretty compelling value proposition. And we make it really easy for them to do it with minimal time and no additional cost. So Mark, let's talk a little bit about marketing for your business. What challenges do you have, but also what do you do that you think works really well for you? We connect with advisors in a variety of different ways. One of the big hot topics for advisors and for us and probably for any vendor, integrations. So we have existing integrations with Orion, Black Diamond, uh, Redtail, Wealth. We have a number of other integrations in the pipeline, some really big, meaningful integrations that advisors have been more or less demanding. I'd say they've been requesting, but I'm going to say they've been demanding it. And we need to deliver on that. We're working feverishly to bring them to market as quickly and, and done well as possible. We have several others that are slated to roll out this year that we're really excited about. So stay tuned. And if you're an advisor listening to this, definitely let us know what other integrations you want. Some of them I'm pretty darn sure are already underway, but others may not be. And this is how we all prioritize. If you want to see Tyler's integrated with your favorite solution, you, know, you got to let them know. And this is how we all prioritize those things. But that's a big focus for advisors. Make the process seamless. Mm -hmm. Reduce time. Reduce error. Make it a better experience either for the advisor or the end client or both. And that's what integrations uh, really are about. That's a big one for us. Okay. What about any marketing challenges? Have you run into anything for your business? Yeah, look, it's, it's always a challenge. We have not, at this point, gone out and raised money the way some large players in our space have done. So mm -hmm. we haven't had the budget to spend on conferences, advertisements, and things where they spend a ton of money. We've mm -hmm. put our resources into the product itself. And so the product itself sings, and the product itself is what drives advisors to use it. At some point, we may need to invest more money in the things just to have more of a presence. I think that puts us at a competitive disadvantage just because we aren't trafficking all those conferences. We've been to a few generally when they've invited me to come speak or when we've been nominated or won an award or something like that, which we have. But we don't do the conference circuit. And that's why I think that's one of the challenges. 
we've put so much into the product where that's really where almost all of our resources have gone. And this is the live site for Tolerance is the 56th, 57th release, something around there. We have a next our next release coming actually quite soon. But it may be time to all be spending on some of those other distribution kinds of channels. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's that's always a factor. How do you spend money on things like that that aren't enhancing the advisor's experience with your tool, but maybe needed just to reach? Exactly. I think there are probably a lot of digital marketing things that you could do to take advantage of this. One example is a guest on a podcast is a great way to get that out there. Yeah. Another thing that comes to my mind is, do you have any relationships with any channels, any distributor? Maybe and distributor in a loose sense of the term in the sense that when somebody another product, they also help to introduce your product. Sure. We, we have a partners program okay. and we have a lot of big names in the industry that are chosen to be in our partners program. Most of them choose to be featured on our website. There are a few that, for whatever reason, they don't want their logo up on another vendor's website. Most do. Most mm-hmm. want the extra marketing attention and value that, that comes with that. They range from other technology vendors, like some of the partners, I, as like some of the integrations uh, I mentioned, the big custodians, a couple of the regionals, trade organizations, the FPA, NAPFA, things like that some in the compliance kind of arena. The compliance folks love tolerance. And so having folks like RA in a box, these are all entities that show to join, again, whether it's Schwab, Fidelity, TD, Ryan, Black Diamond, Redtail, Wealthbox, and, and some of the big trade organizations. But those organizations make it available to their users. In some cases, there are integrations that make the process even better as well, but they're not selling it for us. They'll have to provide and connect with their members or their users or their advisors, however it's, it's structured. Yeah. So it's still challenges. Yeah, but that can still be a great accelerant. Sure. You talked about you don't have the opportunity to get out to the trade shows and things like that. What about other traditional things like either direct mail or it sounds to me like you've got to be generating a really strong referral base of business as well. No, it's not so much referral. Interesting. We get some, but no, you got to remember advisors who find really cool tools don't want to give it to their competitors. Okay, all right. It's a little different. <laughs> we do get some. There are some advisors who are friendly, obviously, with other advisors and don't feel threatened. But sure. no, a lot of advisors want to they, they keep the cool stuff that's so innovative to themselves, interestingly. But no, we reach advisors through email, direct email, not not so much direct mail. I don't know. Okay. Maybe we should, but I guess as a technology company, there's probably more we could do with social media. I'm glad that your podcast will be on social media and things like that. There's probably more that we could do there. But advisors, we place really well in the big surveys, T3s, inside information, wealth tech surveys. So we get people that read about us and see that. We've been published in a lot of places and picked mm-hmm. up in media as, as such an innovative solution. Sometimes they're finding us like that. I guess when you said referral, I was thinking from other users, other sure. advisors, whereas they're more likely reading about us someplace and coming mm-hmm. to us that way. Yeah. Uh, and it's usually because they are already fiduciaries or mm-hmm. most of their businesses as a fiduciary. They don't have to be. In fact, one of the regional broker dealers was kind enough to send us their FINRA review letter. Because there are plenty of advisors that are dual registered, or, or sometimes they call themselves hybrids. They do RIA business and they do some brokerage business. Most of the ones that come to us say that their focus is the advisory business. That's what I find. But again, having an, a FINRA review letter is helpful because some of them need that. And sometimes the brokers just want to elevate this process 
And so they're really operating like fiduciaries, even though maybe technically they're not held to that or considered fiduciary. Again, we cater to anybody that wants to elevate this exercise. It is geared towards the fiduciary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Last time I checked, Mr. Virius is still holding his inside forum. Is that next month or is that? He is wonderful for the industry. I don't know the date offhand, so I, I don't. Yeah, I think it's the next one because he's last time I checked is I got an email from him is the fact that a lot of things are T3 had to re, be rescheduled to the next. Yeah, next I saw that. Well. We don't have a formal podcast like you guys, which I'm, I'm thrilled to be a part of. But I did have the unique opportunity to actually interview Bob Veras. You and, did? Yeah. And that was a treat. And we got a great response from advisors from that. Bob's interviewed me a few times before over the years. He was very gracious and amenable to let me flip the tables on him. That was a few months ago. But we had quite a nice turnout from advisors that signed in to hear that. Bob was a great sport, and I think it was informative, as all of his speeches are. But it was just a different format. It allowed me to ask him the questions and make it much more impromptu than something that may have been otherwise a planned speech. Good. This has been a lot of great information, Mark. uh, I think it's going to benefit all of us. As I said, this is our second broadcast of uh, Essential Financial Advisor Marketing. And what we've just talked about is our essentials. If you're working as an advisor and you're working with consulting with people, um, like there's two questions, you know, how's it work? And am I going to live out out of money? I can recall as an advisor many years ago, we built a pamphlet and the name of the pamphlet is how can I not run out of money or something yeah. like that? And that was 25 years ago. Well, you were ahead of your time. I don't think anything's changed so much. I think if now it's probably getting more and more together with all of these different types of alternative investments, you've got the crypto corner, you get the coins, you got, and it's just a plethora of things you can get into and people are just confused. That's one of the reasons why we suggest come to financialadvisors.com and choose a real <laughs> advisor. Not, and, not something that's going to sell you products, but an advisor. And let's not forget, financialadvisors.com is in our partners program, too. So each one of your member advisors gets a discount on their Tyler subscription. They'll have to go to your website, and I believe you have a repository. You provide this sort of advantageous pricing for technology, whether Tyler's or, or other vendors as well where your members do get a beneficial price. So I think they have to come to your website to get that special code. But once they have that, if they're subscribing to Tolerus, they enter that referral code and they'll get a reduced price. So it's a great benefit that you provide advisors who can procure technology at a preferred price. And I know it's not just Tolerus, but it's a yeah, great service. But we're, we're actually <laughs> updating that focus right now. We started working with Ken just about a couple of weeks ago. And what he brings to the table is all the marketing tools, because most advisors out there that we're working with regards to their profiles, what we now can provide to them are tools that relates to branding, their content, any type of marketing that they need can now be handled all under one roof of financialadvisors.com through the uh, expertise of Ken. I'll, I'll let Ken address that a little bit. Whether it's building a sales funnel and have automated follow-up to, to nurture people, because most people when they're first exploring, they're not ready to talk to anybody, but they're looking for ways to start to build trust. And so if they need to download an ebook or watch a webinar or something like that to help start that journey of building that trust, then you need to nurture them along to the point where they're ready to raise their hand and say, okay, I'm ready for an appointment. Creating the automated booking calendars is a really important modern thing that needs to be added to every website. 
a web text widget is what my preference is instead of a web chat widget. Web text widget gives you the ability to start a two-way SMS conversation, whereas a web chat widget, which you can continue on after somebody leaves that website, whereas a chat widget, you can only talk while they're on that website. And automated lead capture, anytime somebody fills out a form or submits one of these web text widget, capturing all of that, notifying everybody, generating all of the triggered follow-ups that you can build for engaging with people. The world has changed for advisors now where the rules have been relaxed around reviews, around allowing social media comments. They can actually start to market themselves more like other professionals now. So it's a perfect time to be able to take advantage of that. Very good. Good points. Listen, it's been great chatting with you, Mr. Mark Freenthrone, CEO of Fan Founder of Tolerisk. We've all learned a lot this morning as it relates to risk assessment. That's what everybody wants to know. And I really enjoyed your inference, the fact that these are not static types of assessments. They incorporate real live information, especially as it relates to inflation. And as we come into a situation where we're going to add even more trillions to our negative balance budget, it just foretells what will that rate be? Yeah. One cannot project into the future anything of one. What's going to be 1%? No, I, I think if you're an advisor, if you're a couple, you're looking at it, is that I'm going to deal with a professional that really understands that the inflationary draw against my future dollars is real, and I want to be kept on it. I'm going to be kept to date every single year that I meet with you or six months or whatever the case may be to know that what my plan is is a living document, not something I put on the shelf, but something that's a living document that you as an advisor, much like my doctor or eye doctor, or any type of professional, consults with me on a timely basis to make sure we're on that path. That's yeah. yep. excellent information. The one constant, of course, is change. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> that's one thing we can always rely on. Yeah. So well, listen, this has been a pleasure. I appreciate you having me on. I wish you all the best of success, and I look forward to continuing a great relationship. Yeah, thanks. Just one last thing, Mark. How can people find out more about your business? Tolerance.com. Real right. easy. All right, perfect. Okay. Very good. Thank you so much. Thank all you right. so Take much. Take care, folks. Thank, Thank you, Mark. Bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Please be sure and subscribe to the Essential Financial Advisor Marketing Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. We'd love for you to review us wherever you get your podcasts. Visit financialadvisorsupport.com for more episodes, our financial advisor directory, our blogs and video resources, and links to set up a free consultation with the hosts of this podcast. Thanks again and stay tuned.